right, we're live. We're back. We're back for the second episode of This Week in Higher Ed. Terry, Dr. Terry Givens, how are you doing? I am doing very well today. It's a sunny day in California and we don't have any smoke. Nice, nice. The sun came back out in Brooklyn, uh, which is uh, also the name of a screenplay that I'm working on. But uh, but yeah, so uh, so here we are. We're uh, we're back for our second episode. First episode felt pretty good. Nice to get episode number one under our belts. And uh, this week uh, we can blow out the the what we're focusing on. So this is for this week. We're going to have a special guest for the second half, uh, Dr. Maria Anderson. Uh, who's the CEO of Course Tune is going to be beyond for the second half of our conversation, where uh, she'll talk about what Course Tune is doing. Really interesting work around uh, learning architecture, instructional design, helping uh, universities uh, figure out how to navigate the complexities of moving online. So really interesting conversation digging in there uh, with Maria. But we wanted to begin with uh, what's going on this week in higher ed, uh, you know, I mentioned uh, for those who saw some of the, the posts we had coming into this, uh, the ASU GSV con conference began, uh, I guess it, the pre-launch was last Thursday. And then starting yesterday, there's a ton of uh, virtual sessions for the free online ASU GSV conference. That'll be interesting to talk about. Uh, we also wanted to talk about some of the news around uh, diversity training, where definitely want to hear uh, Terry's perspective on some some recent news from uh, the administration and their perspective on that. But we also want to begin by thanking our sponsor, uh, EB Lifestyle, uh, which is a design firm who's sponsoring this session. So thanks to EB Lifestyle for their sponsorship. And uh, and yeah, with that, any what else did I miss, Terry? What else going on? What else is uh, capturing your imagination these days? Well, I mean, I, I've been following what's going on in college football, and of course, mm -hmm. we had the announcements from the Big Ten and the Pac-12 about starting up again. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so th there's a there's a lot of interesting things happening in higher ed. Um, you, you know, we're hit, getting into a period, though, and obviously, some of the reasons for starting football again is has to do with the financials, mm -hmm. and we're we're getting into a period in the next few weeks when we're going to be seeing um, kind of what's going on with enrollment. Um, and, you know, whether institutions are, you know, really going to be able to survive <laughs> this, mm -hmm. uh, these, uh, what's happening with enrollment. And yeah. you know, there is an expectation that we're going to see a reduction in enrollment. And actually, one of the more interesting stories I've seen is that um, even though a lot of people signed up for community college courses or registered for community colleges, they're actually seeing fewer people signing up than they actually showing up to classes than they expected. Yeah. Um, and so that's an interesting trend we're going to be following really closely. Um, mm -hmm. But also some of the uh, private, small private liberal arts colleges are seeing steady enrollments, but where they're hurting is, of course, not as many students or they may have no students in housing. And so, mm -hmm. you know, again, the housing is uh, you know, losing the what they would normally get from housing is, yeah. is a problem. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the community college thing is interesting to me because, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about the digital divide, but more from the perspective of the students. I think mm -hmm. in many cases, community colleges are not as ready to go online. They have tighter budgets. They're maybe more adjunct faculty, you know, like a leaner um, core team. It's hard for anybody. It's hard for any university to be able to manage the online part. But, um, but I think being able to affect that pivot uh, is challenging. And I think 
and and then it, and it's compounded by the fact that their students are more likely to to potentially face some challenges around hopping on online. It, I guess it depends. Maybe there are some community colleges with better um, online programs, but that's the type of stuff that I think would be interesting to talk to uh, Maria about when we get around in the second half, because I know she's been working with a bunch of different organizations, uh, universities in particular, and uh, are there different types of profiles out there? Like what's a typical community college? Uh, where are they at in terms of their learning architecture and their ability to go digital versus a small private liberal arts college versus a big public university versus a big private university with an endowment? It does feel like, you know, it's one of the things I am seeing a lot in, um, in the ASU GSV is that it's not a balanced playing field. Like the impact right. of COVID to different institutions, uh, particularly coming back to like the, the the elite, like the top 1% who have huge endowments, they probably already had online programs to begin with. Navigating this is hard, but they have a lot more of the infrastructure to do it. I think when you sort of slide down to the more, um, I mean, the big public universities in particular, I think are facing, which is why the Big Ten is an interesting uh, and, and the Pac-12 are interesting uh, examples. But then when you go all the way down to like a community college or a small private liberal arts college, um, it's probably gonna be a really mixed bag in terms of how ready people are uh, to go online. Did, was that your experience, Terry, too? Because I know you were both at a big, you know, UT, big, big university in Texas, um, probably different challenges, different ability to go online, different ability to be agile. And then when you're at uh, Menlo, you know, probably a different dimension. Any perspective on uh, just the readiness based on the type of university, like, and how how resilient and agile different types of organizations might be uh, to going online? Well, actually, I have to say, you know, what surprised, surprised me being at a small liberal arts or business college, actually, is, is that it wasn't as flexible as I expected. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a lot of times that these institutions, um, you know, you still have some of the same pressures as you have at a big institution. You know, there's the whole issue of shared governance. So you have to work closely with faculty. Um, and, you know, that's one of the reasons I went to a small private liberal arts college was because I felt like, oh, this will be a place where we can, you know, make change quickly and, and work with closely with the faculty because there aren't that many of them mm -hmm. compared to a big institution. And, you yeah. know, you think about, you know, the big air, aircraft carrier versus the small yeah. you know, pilot you know, ship or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so it, it, it was really interesting to, to, you know, learn that a lot of times there's a, still inertia, you know, mm -hmm. there, there's, this is the way we've always done things, stuff, mm -hmm. or, you know, a focus on some aspects of the institution that may not be as, um, you know, amenable to change. Yeah, so, and it, it's one of the reasons why I think it helps to have outside parties. You and I are both kind of in that position, so is Maria. Like having right. someone outside of the, the sort of the politics and the infrastructure of change management frequently. I know when I was in the private sector, that was one of the reasons why you bring consultants in. Like when you can't necessarily navigate the decision making and rule by committee within an organization frequently that's when you need outside help mm -hmm. so um the other thing i saw recently uh which i was somewhat hopeful for me was that um there's a there, there was a survey i have to pick up where i saw this but there was a survey of different types of organizations around the, the level of optimism for the next you know six months six to twelve months and uh small organizations and sole proprietors were more optimistic than uh, bigger organizations. And I think that's partly because the ability to be nimble 
and opportunistic, I think is there when you're smaller. Once you start to reach a certain level of critical mass, there's more inertia that that you kind of have to navigate. So, um, so yeah. Oh, I see a question from Tarrant. Do you do you, do you see that question? I Tarrant? do. How does a school find that finds itself cut out during COVID work to avoid a similar situation in the future? Well, I think you know a lot of institutions are, are dealing with that issue now. And first of all, you know. I think one of the things that we have to look at more broadly for higher ed is how we do strategic planning. And every campus, you know, will have a strategic plan. But uh, you know, I, I talk about this a lot because it's it's a, a big issue. The strategic plans tend to be something we do one time and stick it up on a shelf, and it sits on a shelf for five or ten years. And and we need to move to a more Agile, I, I will use the term agile because I work with some guys who are, are yeah. working on agile. You're, and it, you're it, Silicon it, Valley, baby. You got to say agile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And and so um, the, I think the first step is to become more agile and to create the, the, the integrated teams across an institution that can, you know, respond um, more quickly. Um, you know, or, or as you know, Marie is jumping in, possibly hiring a project uh, manager for the strategic mm -hmm. plan because you know, I actually, when I was at Menlo College, tried to implement, you know, some, some software, project management software that would have allowed us to track and make sure that we had, you know, clear steps and, and, and but I had a really hard time, you know, because the underlying issue is accountability. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons these schools are finding themselves cut out during COVID is because they're, you know, it's not clear where, who is, is responsible for what, who's responsible right. for making sure that we're ready to jump to online and mm -hmm. you know frankly we were having these discussions about being able to shift to online um years ago because of uh you know wildfires here right. in california mm -hmm. when you have a situation when students um you know can't figure out uh you know that or can't get on uh, get can't get to classes i can't i'm losing my speech ability um can't get to classes because of smoke or earthquake or whatever it may be, right. you know, we're talking about do we have the ability for faculty to get online and um, you know do these courses online? And mm -hmm. so um, that's something we should have been doing because there's you know natural right. disasters. You know, there's so many different things that mm -hmm. uh, can lead to um, us needing to teach online. So. Right. You know, it's just uh, it's uh, it's unfortunate that we were caught. Yeah. Well, and, and and I think lots of times the structures don't exist like the maybe there's a center for teaching, teaching and learning. And there's an instructional designer who's spread across like the entire the entire university or a department. And suddenly everybody needs help. And the help is also seen frequently as like IT support, not actually instructional design, not actually the the learning architecture side of the the equation, mapping it to to learning objectives and and outcomes. Um, like no, if there isn't someone who that's their job, um, you know, maybe that mm -hmm. rolls up to the provost ultimately. But you know, the provost got so many things to juggle these days. You know, like it's that's it's a uh, it's an interesting time uh, for sure and. Uh, and then the other thing we, we did want to mention, at least, was like um, this ASU GSV conference, uh, which uh, we'll, we'll share some of the links there so that you can um, register. It's free and it's online. Traditionally, it was $3,000 and uh, in San Diego uh, or Salt Lake City or wherever it was. But it was 
it was very much for um, like business development people, people more senior in ed tech, maybe senior members in uh, in the administration. I know you had attended uh, Terry, but it didn't. You were kind of an outlier, right? Like typically, ASUGSV was more of the partnerships. Uh, a lot of guys in suits, uh, you know, having private meetings to talk about venture capital. Right. That's still that's still part of it, but it does feel like going online has made this conference uh, more accessible, and um, they're just pumping out so much content. Some of it's good, yeah. a lot of it's just kind of overwhelming, and then all the videos are available. So, like, I thought it was a good, I thought it was good for this audience to at least understand that it's there if they haven't seen this conference, because you know it is a place where you can do more with inclusion when you go online. You can actually at least make the opportunity there for folks who can hop in if they haven't seen this type of stuff. And I would encourage folks, if you're, uh, if you're uh, just an instructor, if you're a professor, if you've never really gone to these types of ed tech conferences, some of the content's pretty interesting. And uh, there's a lot of stuff about social emotional learning. There's a lot of stuff about um, the COVID response. Um, I saw a really interesting panel yesterday on um, the workforce side about organizations that don't include uh, childcare as a benefit and aren't empathetic to parents who are facing new challenges are to lose out to organizations that are able to, to think that way. So if you do, I know everyone's busy, but if you do have time to kind of like hop in and uh, just cherry pick a few of these sessions, I think you can, um, you can feel more like you're at the cutting edge. Uh, mm -hmm. Any, uh, what's, What's been your impression? I know it just started and yeah. it's definitely drinking from the fire hose, but. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, I went into the one of the first sessions yesterday and then they, they have the breakout rooms and you look, and this was true when I went there, you know, in person as well. I mm -hmm. went to San Diego a year and a half ago. Yeah. And it's just this huge, but the worst, actually um, the nice thing, at least this year is that um, you can actually go to the sessions. Last year, yeah. the, the sessions would get filled and then you couldn't get in. And uh -huh. so there were a lot of sessions I wanted to go to that I couldn't go to because I didn't get there fast enough. Right, um, right. And also, um, I, I should mention the networking um, because there there is great opportunities to, to network with people. Um, I, have, I haven't really tried it out uh, myself yet. I meant to go last evening, but mm -hmm. other things got in the way. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, I, I highly recommend um, trying to reach out and, and connect with people. But the, the, what struck me so far, I listened a bit this morning to um, Michael Sorrell, who's the president of Paul Quinn College, which is yes, a right. private HBCU. And he's always an inspiring speaker. He's, he's, one, of, speaker, and he's one of my favorite people in higher ed. Mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. He's the one who came out and said, you know, we shouldn't be, you know, we should be thinking about the students and COVID. Yeah, and, he fa famously converted his football field into like a agriculture kind of farm. Yeah, it's a, yeah he's basically. A, he's a real, real innovator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he, he's one of the most innovative people in higher ed. So he's always gets invited to, to these venues. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I watched his his talk this morning. I watched a little bit of Michael Crow and mm -hmm. Valerie Jarrett. Oh, no, actually, that was. Um, uh, Valerie Jarrett uh, was speaking to the guy from 2U, who's Skip Pacek. Yeah, Chip, uh, Chip, Chip Pacek. Yeah, 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 I should know. I interviewed him on our yeah, yeah. Um, podcast. But um, yeah, I think one of the interesting things about ASU GSV is it, it's so broad, yes. right? Yeah. There's everything is there. So it's not mm -hmm. just higher ed. It's it's not yep. just K through 12. It's it's mm -hmm. politics. It's yep. um, you know just about Work, everything. Is yeah, yeah. There. Mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, 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 even uh, pre K. I saw like with a with a two year old, I I 
I figured out how woefully uninformed I am about uh, early childhood education, but there's a ton of that going on too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, it's true. You can find just about anything there. And the good news is this year it's free. It's usually a very expensive conference to go to. Um, yeah. And another, and another theme that's there, Terry, is, is uh, diversity and inclusion. Yeah. Uh, they did I, I did they did say that every panel had uh, at least some representation from uh, like non-white well, men, basically. Like, like yeah, 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 yeah. Which yeah. isn't isn't that high a bar, but it's still better than because there is that feeling, and again, I, I don't, I've learned to notice this feeling, but I, I see it now, like when you see a panel and they're all white guys talking to each other, yeah. I think there is a certain level of, of disengagement that that many of us are starting to, to feel, uh, even some white guys are starting to notice that and feel uncomfortable in those contexts, but but certainly others have, haven't had the opportunity to not notice that. Um, but uh, we did want to talk a bit about uh, some of the news that's been out there uh, around uh, diversity programs, anti, you know, uh, whether it's uh, anti-racist programs, anti-anti-racism or implicit bias training. Mm -hmm. um, the 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 Trump administration uh, came out with pretty strong, very strongly uh, about uh, about that, and bigly, yes, all that huge uh, messages about this. Um, and uh, and we definitely want to make sure we. We grabbed a few minutes on that before we we brought uh, Maria in to go deeper on uh, the course tune side of the conversation. So, any thoughts from from you? Uh... Um, I mean, it's really interesting because I, I people on Twitter are saying, "Well, it's it's really interesting that you know we're saying that anti you know anti racist diversity programming is racist." That's basically mm -hmm. what the administration is saying. And right. and you know the reality is the these kinds of pro actually I'm curious. I meant to check on this before we talked, but I haven't had a chance. Um, one of the issues, for example, is that the state of California requires, you know, uh, this kind of training, um, mm -hmm. you know, and it, it's it's more legalistic in the mm -hmm. sense that it focuses on kind of the legal requirements for avoiding um, discrimination. So it's yeah. really more anti-discrimination. And harass, harassment and right, all exactly. that. Yep. Mm -hmm. And all that. So, you know, in the state of California, in many states, and actually, you know, when I was at University of Texas at Austin, we had to to take this kind of training to learn, you know, what are the yep. legal requirements around discrimination and so mm -hmm. on. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the diversity training takes it one step further and says, no, we want to learn to develop a culture of, you know, mm -hmm. diversity. And, you know, it really revolves around the fact that we're becoming a more diverse country. But, yeah. you know, I live in Silicon Valley. I can look around and see, you know, boards and, and CEOs, yeah. and, you know, com whole companies are lacking mm -hmm. in diversity. And so the yeah. idea is let's learn how to, you know, it's important, right? We yeah. are not going to survive if we exclude a huge percentage of what you know, is now becoming the majority of people right. from these kinds of positions. Mm -hmm. And it's important in education, of course, as well. Yeah. So, you know, it's really dismaying that, that, that this is a target. Um, of, although, uh, although I will say some of the pushback was a little bit heartening, like particularly the seeing that the, the armed services uh, yes, a place, a place that has been uh, historically really at the forefront of um, like integration, uh, diverse groups, you know, like it, it is, there, there are a lot of the military, you have to learn how to deal with diversity and learn how to work together, um, really rely on people, you know, for your, your, your safety and your, your, your survival. Um, and it was, it was interesting to see that, of course, how any sort of pushback happens and how policies actually get uh, changed uh, versus like, I think it was an executive order uh, that that kind of got a lot of the ball rolling on this. And it was also interesting um, 
on the workforce side, which is the other reason why, you know, I do think um, to play with your head up in higher ed and understand that like the challenges within higher ed are not limited to higher ed, particularly on the, the diversity side, uh, diversity training side, um, mm -hmm. is, is, is really kind of heartening in that you can see that you're not, you may feel alone fighting this fight if you're in a, you know, in an organization where you're the only person who identifies the way that you do. Mm -hmm. um, but it is, I, I find hope in seeing that there is some pushback. And okay. what I find most, what I find most frustrating is that it's not, it's just an edict. And it's like, I don't even have time to understand, you know, you, you, you're you write about empathy, you know, mm -hmm. the idea that you can't even empathize, you're immediately looking at your own pain and your own discomfort with the conversation, which truth be told, it is hard to sometimes come to terms with your own biases, mm -hmm. but it is part of your own growth. And then mm -hmm. to not be open to even having the conversation, because even even if the administration were to say, we're questioning the efficacy of this, there have, you know, there have been questions about whether implicit bias actually, that particular flavor of training works, you yeah, know? Exactly. Yeah. So, um, so any other 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 beats on that? Other thoughts? Any other sessions? Uh, any <laughs> other ideas? Uh, top of mind. We we could spend more time on this, obviously, and we'll probably want to do a deeper dive on uh, diversity as a topic. Uh, yeah. You know, get back into into this with some more detail. Also, if anyone in the chat has any thoughts, um, yeah. you know, but but any other any other uh, thoughts from you, Terry, on this? Well, I would just say that, yeah, we, we, we'll be having more discussions about this, you know, there, that's an, it's, it's an ongoing issue and it's, you know, part of both what you and I do in general is, mm -hmm. you know, diversity drives uh, a lot of the, the work that we do in mm -hmm. education more broadly. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, in terms of ASU GSV, I, I was very heartened by the fact that they really did because that and what ASU GSV did is is a part of the, you know, what I try to teach about you know when I do workshops and so on, which is that we have to be intentional. You know the way they got those panels. You know, we talk about mantles, you know, <laughs> um, and and the way you you get um, you know past that issue of having all white males on panels is you have to be intentional. You have to say and and you can't say oh I can't find anybody. It's like you know, right. there's lots and lots and lots of people out there there was a, yeah. a that you know talked about uh one of the top people in in wells fargo was saying they don't have diversity because they're just there aren't people we can't find anybody <laughs> so he got he got dragged yeah. on linkedin and twitter for that I'm because sure. like, yeah. we aren't here you know i'm sorry right. you, you know if you look at the the numbers of people from um you know underrepresented backgrounds graduating from higher ed it, it, it's it's you know the numbers are there um, right they're just not looking in the right places and mm -hmm. um, or they're you know a lot of times that's an excuse and so mm -hmm. you need to get past those excuses but yeah and just sort of along similar lines like when you get even broader about inclusion um the fact that there i saw a graduate assistant from mit presenting on like robotics and ai uh, i think there's more educators who are getting panel spots i think when you start to you know extend i think tyrant's making the comment in chat like when you extend beyond like the board members or CEOs of organizations that you want to make sure maybe they're sponsors, like there are reasons the whole mechanics of conferences tend to source the same profiles over and over again. It does. I did notice, you know, I, I won't give them a, a an A plus, but I will give them a, a, like an E for effort or at least a, a an effort thumbs up 
uh, to uh, ASU GSV because it does feel like they they're starting to get it. Um, I'm just not sure ultimately, you know, if it's going to change where the ed tech capital goes, which is the the real the reason why this is an interesting conference to watch if you're thinking about starting a company or if you're looking potentially looking for funding. A lot of it comes out of meetings that traditionally would happen while the conference was going on. Um, it's another thing that I'm really curious about. Um, we could probably track over time too. Is you know what happens to the networking stuff that used to happen in the comfort of a conference when it moves to like speed dating and Zoom? Is it is it as effective? Is it not as effective? You know, conference organizers are are really grappling with this. Um, and even the fact that ASU GSV, they have eight concurrent sessions happening at the same time, which is totally overwhelming, but it's kind of fun to crowd surf. Like it is fun. It reminds me of when I used to go to Jazz Fest uh, in New Orleans. Like you just kind of, you get a taste of everything without really digesting the entirety of it. But like, it's a good way to kind of get a feel for what's what's emerging in the world around us. So, uh, so more to come, more to come on all that. And I want to answer Terrence's uh, next question before we move on. Yeah. She said, she's asking me as a successful speaker, how did you get started speaking to conferences? And did you just answer a call for proposals? And basically it's word of mouth. Um, that's, and, and that's, it's, it's a good and bad, right? So the way that you, you get invited to things is usually um, because somebody asks, but that's why, you know, you have to be intentional about the diversity, right? So you have to expand your network of people you ask. And so I've joined several organizations that, you know, basically a friend said, I would join this entity and, and you know, maybe. And so, but most of my speaking engagements are because of people I know in higher ed. Um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I uh, I think that we you know we're at a, a point, maybe hopefully a tipping point, where we're seeing more you know, women and people of color getting invited to these things. Um, but you know, we get to see Michael Sorrell at almost every single right. higher ed. You know, I love Michael Sorrell, yeah, but yeah. I know there are other. You know, I mean, I've had some really good discussions with other people. You know, uh, James Moore at Ohio State. Um, you mm -hmm. know, there's like uh, new. Um, th there are you know yeah. presidents. And, and women of color at yeah. lots of institutions that are doing really cool things. And it'd be fun to see some of them getting invited to these events as well. Yeah. Well, and at the same time, I think it the barrier to entry to do your own thing, whether it's your own podcast or host webinars, what we're doing here um, mm -hmm. is getting, it's getting easier. So hopefully uh, we'll be able to, you know, walk the walk uh, in terms of who, who we wind up talking to and what topics we cover. But that is another thing that I'm, I am interested in too. Like it does feel like just ASU GSV can go so big because they have all the the quote unquote eight listers. But I think there's a lot of emerging talent who are going to have access to platforms like this mm -hmm. um, moving forward. So, so that, that's kind of hopeful. And, uh, and that's also an open invite to folks if they want to opt in or if they're interested in appearing on the show, we'd love to love to hear more ideas, uh, whether you want to do it or whether you have a suggestion, someone you think would be a great guest. But uh, but I think speaking of that, maybe we could uh, maybe we could bring in a great guest. What do you think about that? I love that idea because yeah. this is one of my new favorite people in higher ed. Wow! <laughs> and we have Maria Anderson. Yay. Hello. Hello. Welcome. Thank you. So any uh, any initial uh, initial impressions? I know we want we definitely want to hear your uh, your origin story, uh, your hero's tale, hero's quest, if you will. What got you to where you are? 
But uh, but any initial impressions on anything we talked about so far before we we dive in there? Um, I I was jotting down some notes while you guys were talking, and um, I've been to GSC, and it is an interesting experience, uh, very different than uh, the normal educational conference for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly some of Terry's comments about the mantles and, and whatnot were resonating with me. But I have to say that also just um, one of the things that I find hard about conferences is the panels period, mm-hmm. because they tend to be just a collection of five or six 10 minute presentations, five minutes mm-hmm. of each, which is, let me tell mm-hmm. you about myself, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that's not very useful. I mean, you you can't walk away from those panels with any useful understanding of any of the subject areas, and I, I think that panels can actually be better designed. And I agree. One of the things that that I do when I am moderating a panel or on a panel is get everybody to write down or contribute what they want to talk about, mm-hmm. and then we figure out who has overlap, and mm-hmm. then we craft questions that will lead everybody to have two chances to say something yeah. that's like near and dear to them without everybody piling on a yes, me too on every right. comment, right? So everybody right. knows they're gonna be able to say something that's appropriate and furthers mm-hmm. the conversation and gets everybody further. Yeah. And um, you know, that, that, that's that been my my biggest issue with uh, conferences like GSV and South by Southwest and the panels, the panels are just exhausting. Yeah, and, I've, seen, I've seen a mixed bag. I think you're right. I think. Th- there's some that are better, but I think frequently it's when people already know each other. I think frequently the, unless there's a really good moderator, if people haven't connected before, it just feels, it feels almost like an awkward, yeah. awkward outing. Uh, and then everyone's very much focused on their, they're not necessarily listening to each other. Mm-hmm. They're just preparing to say their own thing. Yeah, clearly, sure. clearly you, Maria, have been listening to the entirety of this conversation. So, so good job by, by you, but uh, can you introduce uh yourself and uh, sure, let folks absolutely. know a little bit about wh- who you are, how you got here. Yeah, so I'm uh, the CEO of Coursetune. We're a company that develops uh, learning design software. Uh, so we help you to create the curriculum architecture from learning objectives to course objectives, program outcomes, uh, alignment to professional standards, outside standards, workforce, skills, etc. cetera. Um, and uh, we came about in uh, late 2016 uh, because um, there is a real need to have software that does this. All of the folks who are trying to do curriculum design are doing it in spreadsheets and documents. And um, spreadsheets were, you may not know this, but spreadsheets were designed for the financial industry and the business industry. And they don't have the right kinds of structures and fields to easily do curriculum design. And by that, I mean things like um you may, uh, a college has, you know, a calculus class and a calculus class is used by the math department, by the physics department, by the chemistry department, by the economics department. So that class is included in every program that I just talked about as part of their program mapped to their professional standards and their program standards and spreadsheets don't let you do that. <laughs> right? Right, well, right. You can make a hundred spreadsheets and one spreadsheet for every program and but then you have to remember if you change that calculus class on spreadsheet one, that you've got to go change it on spreadsheets two through 100, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, and that doesn't happen and it, it just creates kind of a disaster in planning. And then the other uh, problem we really wanted to overcome was uh, that you can't ever really see the architecture. You can't really grok it. Uh, yeah. 
there's not a one view version of it. And so mm -hmm. we really wanted to solve that. Um, even when you build a, an online course in something like uh, your learning management system of choice, you can't see the whole thing at once. Yeah. The best you can do is see how many modules there are, but mm -hmm. you have to open a module to see the pages and you have to open the pages to see the learning objectives. You have to open the assignments to see if they're, you know, assessments or learning activities. And right. You never can see the whole thing at once. And it's, it's just maddening as an instructor yeah. to have mm -hmm. to hold this entire architecture in your head right? and try to find things and change things and improve on things and keep notes in your head for, oh, I should remember to change this next semester. I mean, how many of us who have taught have had this experience where we think like, oh, I gotta remember to change this project next semester. Next semester right. rolls around, project gets assigned, and you're like, oh, as you're grading it, you're like, I remember I meant to change this, right? And so we wanted a place where you could not only keep your architecture, but also, you know, take notes on your architecture, you know, leave yourself to-do lists for next time around. It, you can mm -hmm. share it with your instructional designer or whoever else may help you with the project, uh, the next implementation. I mean, sometimes we go a year without teaching the class again, and you right. don't remember, especially in 2020, like mm -hmm. who remembers what they thought to change fall of last year? Like right. nobody, right? Right, right. We really believe in, in continuous improvement, in really uh, knowing what's in your course architecture, your program architecture. And I, I truly believe that if you have paid attention to the internal alignment of courses and the alignment of courses to programs, uh, and, and their outcomes in the workplace, that what you get is a more engaging and efficient student experience. And that really uh, benefits outcomes, right? Because yes. if students feel like they're not doing a lot of busy work and that they are um, engaged by the, the curriculum they have, then they're more likely to succeed. Right. If and this is what I refer to as the hard work of curriculum. Like we are past all the low hanging fruits in education. Yeah. Like, we look at click data, so we know whether students have clicked in the LMS. We right. know whether students have communicated with instructors via various systems, right? What we don't actually know is what the curriculum actually is. Mm -hmm. That is the hard work. It involves dragging some things out of faculty uh, that are difficult uh, to do, but armed with that full curriculum architecture, you could start to mix and match, make new, new programs, certificates, design new experiences for students. Yeah. Can't do any of that if you don't know what's there. Yeah, and then how, how did you get to that place too? Because I think you picked up with what Course Tunes is and found it in 2016, but what was your backstory to kind of get you to the place where you, you founded uh, the yeah. company? So I, I actually had to write down my steps here because I, um, I couldn't quite remember the order, but I started teaching online in 2007. I worked at a community college as full-time faculty for 10 years. Um, and when I started teaching online, I decided that if I was going to do it, I was going to do it as well as face-to-face, -face. like no questions. I was just going to keep looking for the right tools and techniques until I could do it. I taught calculus one and two online uh, for the community college to left in 2012. Um, during that time, I also ran um, a, a math and technology workshop every summer to help instructors from all over the country learn how to teach online. And that was a really good uh, um, immersive experience and knowing what's going on on campuses all over the country, uh, their, their internal struggles, their curriculum battles. There's a lot of curriculum battles in math 
Um, you know, we've gone through this whole like leave dev math behind and adopt new programs and, yeah. you know, sponsored by various organizations. Some people are willing, you've got hostages who are doing it unwillingly, you know, and so just watching all of those uh, battles and hearing about them from people over the country for five years was really kind of probably laid some foundational work in my mind for what, what we had as problems. And then I, I went to work for Instructure and I uh, worked specifically on Canvas Network. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so then I had to design uh, all sorts of different courses very quickly um, and get them to work online. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, for large populations, too. And so, you know, going through kind of a QA process for those, for a lot of instructors is like the very first time they had ever had anybody do a quality assurance check on their class. Right. right. And so, you know, despite giving them a heads up that, like, here's the checks we're going to go through. Many of them chose to ignore those checks completely. And, uh, you know, we'd have to have difficult conversations about, you know, hey, uh, we actually need some of these things in the class. And then watching those classes launch, it was like watching little instructional design, well, big instructional design experiments launch one after another. So every week you'd learn new things about what worked and didn't work. And then the next, then you'd like quickly let all the instructors know who were launching the next week, try it again, see how it works, try it again, see how it works. So this is a very rapid development cycle where we kind of learned from our our mistakes uh, very mm -hmm. quickly in how we could improve the class every every week we could improve the next class. Um, I went from there to work for an adaptive learning company. So um, I had a lot of uh, time spent doing the architecture of learning down to the adaptive learning level, which is like yep. sub objectives, right? And really outlining all of the substructure of learning. Mm -hmm. um, there are some really uh, interesting, uh, I think, implications of, of, of adaptive, and I'm not sure we're quite to where we need to be yet. I was just reading uh, yesterday an article about um, YouTube's early days and how they, uh, you know, if user clicks video A and then clicks video B, send them, send all users down that path, right? Mm, and I mm. immediately had this sinking feeling in my gut because what it did at YouTube was it sent people down rabbit holes, right? right. Rabbit holes of really bad conspiracy theory vi videos, right? Yeah, yeah. And when you start to do that, you're relying on the majority making a decision for everybody. And if you think about what that means, like for, for example, for like a low level math class, um, if you have a, a bunch, say 50% of your students follow the path A, C, E, F, right? That could just be because 50% of the students have a stronger math background. That doesn't mean everybody should follow the path A, C, D, F, right? Right, right. If you ignore the demographics of your population and their prior knowledge and, and their life experiences and how they, I mean, there's, there's just some real dangers here with uh, trusting in algorithms completely mm -hmm. to do this work. And I think that's, again, where like you see some of those elements in course tune, I think, because we believe that uh, experts in the field who have worked with with real human students for you know decades do know something about what a natural order for some things are. And yes, yeah, some students might be able to skip steps in some of those paths, but not all of them. And a student who's a complete newbie to the field needs all the steps, right? right. 
right. so I don't think we can trust majority rules algorithms in these decisions at all. Mm -hmm. um, and so then my, my final step before Kirsten was as the director of learning design for Western Governors University. Ah. And so there I got like a crash course PhD in, in competency-based learning design. Right. Not really a PhD, but I call it a crash course PhD because that's what it felt like. Yeah. And I was working with uh, about 45 staff in instructional design and learning experience design across all of the colleges at WGU, 108 different vendors who provided technology for the classes and trying to solve all of the different learning problems in all of our different subject areas, right? Mm -hmm. And so that was just like a vast exposure to the different curriculum architectures you see in a variety of uh, subjects, right? And, and, and WGU is known as an industry leader yeah. in higher ed, online education. Uh, so folks who don't know WGU, uh, Maria- University. Yeah, there you go. Uh, but uh, but yeah, it's definitely a good one to kind of ramp on and it'd be fun to get more of your perspective uh, on that as well. But Terry, I've been, we got to balance you. our talk time, you know, so yes. so I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to be like a mouse. Yeah. Okay, yeah. fine. But yeah, yeah. Um, no, I got excited about the work that Maria's and her company is doing. We actually, I, full disclosure, we met on Brian Alexander's web, uh, mm. webcast. Um, and it was just one of these random things where we both happened to be chatting. But um, I got excited about her company because as a provost, I've experienced having to try and you know, pull faculty. You know, you, I had the accreditors breathing down my neck about getting our course and program learning in, uh, outcomes done. And I'm trying to pull my faculty you know, into this world of this new world, really, for so many of them of accreditation and assessment. And actually one of the first things we did um, in as uh, when I created the Center for Higher Education Leadership, now known as Brighter Higher Ed, um, is create an assessment guide because I know so many faculty who don't, you know, we don't learn about this in graduate school. Again, one yep. of those things besides, you know, we don't learn a whole lot about teaching. And, you know, I, I really am pushing for graduate education to start taking these things into consideration. Yes, I'm a political scientist, but I'm also going to be a teacher mm -hmm. and I need to know what it means to teach and how to, you know, do this kind of work in, in assessment and understand what learn. I mean, you know, it's, we're in the such, you know, we, we talk about innovation and college survival. Well, this is one of those things that has to happen. I mean, they're just, we can't move forward as institutions without having this, this, uh, I mean, the accreditors are going to are still requiring us to do it, regardless of what the you know what the financial situation is. So we got to invest in this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, that's not really a question for Maria. <laughs> no, no, no. But it's tough, it's tough time. It's, which is a start. It's a start. But uh, but yeah, Maria. So like, uh, what we talked a little bit uh, while we were prepping, you know, in March, everybody was caught off guard. People had to move suddenly. I imagine the types of engagements, what March was like through say the summer was one scenario. Now we're starting the fall where folks might've had a little bit of time, but everyone's still been shook and not really sure what they're designing for. Can you talk a little bit about the different design windows, how much time you need, how to do it right? How do you actually get the learning architecture? Like if, if you wanna work with an organization or you wanna work with a school, how early in the process or how late in the process can they reach out to you? Do you have some examples uh, yeah, based so, on your experience? Yep. So uh, the first thing to say is that we start by trying to minimize uh, the pain around getting your data into some kind of organized um, 
uh, structure. Mm -hmm. So the first thing we do with clients is say, just send us all the files, spreadsheets, PDFs, Word docs, whatever you have from whatever your programs and courses are, just send those to us and we will make them appear inside of CourseTune with all of the data that's appropriate for learning architecture. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, the, that is done by us to lighten the load on institutions because the data is so disparate across even courses in the same department often, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, so that gives schools a starting place for where is your architecture right now? And then we uh, work with schools to set kind of milestones for what they want to accomplish when. Mm -hmm. um, and usually one of their first steps is to flesh out some of the architecture that's missing because there's always some of that architecture that's missing. So that's like, you know, knowing what the learning objectives are in the courses right. and whether the learning objectives actually feed into the stated course objectives, mm -hmm. um, which is a real thing at many mm -hmm. institutions. Uh, I. I have actually taught courses at institutions where the, uh, the institution says, I say, these course objectives don't seem to match what we're actually teaching in this course. And they'll say, yeah, those are from 10 years ago. We haven't updated them. Yeah. Just put yeah. them on the syllabus. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you're like, uh, okay. <laughs> you know, so just imagine if you're going to develop a new certificate program or a new degree program to try to keep up with the changing world and you're the provost or you're the dean, you're looking through the syllabi you have and these classes say one thing, mm -hmm. but, but in reality, they do something completely different. Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we often find that the first step in the process is really looking at, um, well, people come at it from two ways. Some people start at the course level and really look at the internal alignment of courses, whether what's there is correct. Do they need to make some changes? They often have to articulate the learning objectives better so that they can start to do things like add learning and assessment activities to them. Right, right. Um, we have a platform that actually uh, kind of forces you to choose which learning objectives go with your assessment mm -hmm. or go with your discussion or like we, we don't think that you should just say, I'm going to have four exams. Right. Well, I mean, a lot of it frequently is just implicit knowledge within the faculty, right? Like they don't, they yeah. don't know that right. they, ha they don't know the time. They know the curriculum. They're under the gun pressures. And different they know the curriculum. Sure. I don't know yeah, if anybody actually. actually knows the curriculum at most schools. Yeah. If you, if you have four different chemistry teachers teaching intro chem, do you actually know that they all know what the curriculum is supposed to be? Sure, sure. I mean, yeah. probably in intro chem you do, but what what about as you move yeah. up the levels? And right. plus, you know, each other as much, and there's less coordination. Exactly, and you know that should be happening at the level of the, the department, but often the department chair doesn't understand, you know, how to coordinate the you know this the different aspects of the you know they know we have okay we have. You know, like I'm a political scientist, so we have you know American politics and comparative politics, and but within that there isn't necessarily a curriculum. There's classes right. that have to be taught because there's you know certain maybe state requirements, and then there's classes that professors want to teach, and so you know, right. but the other component of that is you know it's what's in in the course catalog, and it's so hard to change what's in the course catalog because you have to go through the higher education coordinating board to act, even right. just change a class. So a lot of this has to do with the structures. 
but um, I, that I want to make sure we we save a little time to talk about this whole issue of you know how does that curriculum then lead to employability? Because right. when I was at the University of Texas at Austin and we tried to start a couple of new majors, the Texas Higher Education Coordinating Board kept pushing back on us and saying, mm -hmm. OK, you can start this major, but you have to be able to tell us what kind of jobs can somebody get if they take the, this set of classes. Yeah. So so I want to actually take that kind of I want to just clarify one thing and then take this a step further. What you just asked. Um, I don't think that curriculum should dictate exactly what assignments and exactly oh, what no. projects anybody should have. The curriculum should just detail the, what they should be learning, right? Mm -hmm. The choice of how to do that, how to actually implement that learning and assessment should be the instructors. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where the academic freedom comes in. It's It should not be in the choice of what is taught in intro chemistry. It should be in the choice of how you teach it, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so going on to, to the workplace, um, I think that we have... Um, a very fast moving job market now. Uh, mm -hmm. Jobs are being uh, created and destroyed at a very rapid rate. Yeah. We've seen uh, from the past that just because the world becomes more productive, it doesn't mean the jobs necessarily uh, become easier to get or, uh, you know, yeah. they often require more skills than the job the person lost required. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think we actually need to throw back to a model uh, that we already know a little bit. I think four-year schools need to start thinking about giving two-year degrees. Mm -hmm. And the reason they need to do that is they need to acknowledge that not all students can actually afford to spend four full years in school. Like yeah. imagine as an adult with kids and a job and a family and parents to take care of that right. you are faced with the only way you can get a better job is taking four years full-time out of your life that's not doable. And many of these high paying jobs are very highly technical jo jobs. I mean, you cannot be trained for them in like 10 hours a week pretending to be full time, right? Like it just doesn't work. And so I think we need to create kind of like milestone associates degrees on the way to four year degrees, which mm -hmm. would have the effect that a student could go back to school for two years, mm -hmm. much shorter period of time while working some low-end job to keep food on the table, right? Right, right. And then uh, get this milestone degree, which lets them level up to a better job that, that they can then work towards that four-year degree, maybe over three years or something, right, while they mm -hmm. work a better job. So how do we get people in just one or two years to a better job on the way to the four-year degree, right? right and right. some of these degrees were actually the perfect way to do that if we actually provide enough skills in that associate's degree to do it, right? Right, right. Because associate's degrees transfer nicely, right? Um, so even if you switch schools, you get to transfer in all your general eds, right? Right. No questions asked. It was an associate's degree. You're done. So I think, you know, if you look at, you know, Specific degree programs, for example, I wrote down a couple, like a degree in business, like a four-year degree in business. Mm -hmm. In two years, you could probably learn enough, if it was structured right, to be a good office manager, a good right. project manager, a social media writer, a good salesperson. Like if we structured the first two years, so you took enough classes to be useful to a business, yep. you could level up to one of those jobs, right? If you looked at something like computer science, well, a stepping stone degree might be something like web development which right. you learn some programming for, but not all the programming for a CS degree, right? right, right. Database management, or you could learn how to be a QA engineer. Nice, yep. good paying job mm -hmm. on your way to learning a full programming background, right? right. And right. so I think we could do these with 
all of our four-year degrees. And what this forces is every four-year degree program to actually pay attention to what? Workplace skills. Yeah. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Tell me in the first two years what skills you're going to give me that help me get a better job when I'm halfway through this degree. Right. Mm-hmm. On my way to my ultimate goal. Right. right. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I think that's really where we, we might have been failing students is that we do so much around general eds those first two years. Mm-hmm. And we, we can still do general eds, but maybe we need to have general eds with a small focus, you get four semesters. So what skills could you teach in four successive semesters mm-hmm. that would give somebody a leg up in the yeah. job mm-hmm. world, right? Especially uh, if, uh, you know, when that's combined with some kind of internship or, you know, some kind of real world training, like that's, that's yep. those are some of the models that we're we're really fascinated by. That's part of why Terry and I have connected on, on this show. Like it, there's not enough attention. That's why ASU GSV is exciting because, at least there's different ideas getting out there because I think it's been a very rigid um, ecosystem. If you look at higher ed over the last say 20, 30 years, like a little bit of higher, little bit of online, the MOOCs happen, but it's kind mm-hmm. of been the same, same old, same old. Uh, do you have any perspective on how much of a game changer uh, you think COVID is and the opportunity? Cause, cause there's the, the forcing function, everybody's getting pushed online, but on the other side, budgets are getting squeezed. So I don't know if you have any perspective on how innovation is going to happen, where to look for the innovation, what kind of partners you're finding out there. I'd love any perspective you might have on that. Sure. Um, let me bring it back to one more thing and then go to you your yeah, question. Please. Um, so, so I just want to bring it back to Course Tune for a second because sure. what we can do in Course Tune is let you list all those workplace skills that you right. want students to have field by field or job by job, however you'd like to do it, and then align curriculum to those skills. So you can actually say, all right, we want to aim for office manager. What classes could somebody take to help them start to become an office manager, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So that's one of the benefits of actually knowing what's in your curriculum. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, So COVID, I think it's pushed uh, higher education forward by about a decade um, of, of what it would have to take naturally to do that. Which is for higher ed actually probably a really good thing because we were moving too slowly nice. uh, with regards to adoption of technology. And the reason we need to have adopted that technology is because we need to be more flexible to students. Uh, one of the reasons WGU has been so spectacularly successful is because they go after the some college no degree population yeah. that mm-hmm. is working and taking care of family and, you know. Uh, very, very busy, and it, it provides a way for them to take classes, right? Well, I think a lot of people would be willing to take classes from a college, more traditional college, if they didn't have to get childcare and battle right. traffic to get there, right? Mm-hmm. Suddenly, we finally have an embrace that remote learning is a possibility. There's yeah. some of us who've been experimenting with for years i've been using remote learning for years like when i go to a conference i've always remoted into a classroom to teach the students i try to never cancel any classes right yeah and then you know if they're sick if they're unable to come they've always been able to remote into my classes because i knew how to use the technology right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. now everybody knows how to use the technology so i think what we're going to see from students is more of a like even in tradition even once everything returns to normal uh please let everything return to normal one day Um, 
I think you're going to see students pushing like, well, I can't be there in person, but can't I just remote in? Like they all know it's possible too now, right? We can't say that's not possible anymore. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think um, offering remote classes is actually more engaging than uh, than asynchronous classes for most people. Asynchronous classes are still part of the mix because some folks need a very flexible time schedule. Others are able to say like, yeah, I can actually make a class every morning at noon or every day at noon. Um, and that, that works great. I can take my lunch break. I can do class. Like it's what I want to do. I want to have that, that, you know, a, that synchronous experience. Right. Um, that's the, the bigger issue, right. Is that learning it shouldn't end, right. We, we, we should yeah. make learning accessible to anybody who wants it. And that was kind of the idea behind the MOOCs, but then people know that, they have to have that credibility behind it. So why wouldn't an institution say, okay, you know, and before I get to that though, I wanna make two other points. First of all, you know, we have to deal with the graduation rate crisis, right? And that's the other reason for making it more flexible, um, allowing students, you know, to take courses when they can um, versus the strict, you have to take 15 credits every semester or, you know, and that's part of that has to do with financial aid. Um, but then there's a finan- the financial aid component is that we have a, a debt crisis. And so we right. need to make, you know, w- flexibility, um, you know, allowing people to get a degree after two years, you know, it, it, it deals with so many of the, the really bad issues we are dealing with in higher ed around retention and, mm-hmm. and um, student debt and, you know, Affordab- affordability, right? Yeah. Yeah, affordability. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think if you can let people or even go after this model that it's okay to go maybe two years full-time and then go to three years part-time or something like that. Right. Mm -hmm. Where you can like, so you know, you only have to sprint at the low paying job for two years. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And then you, you get a leg up. Mm -hmm. Now you, you go a little slower, but you do it for three years or four years or whatever it takes. Right. Mm -hmm. I think we just need to acknowledge that, now you're going to go back to school multiple times and if you're going to go back to school multiple times four years at a time is not going to do it right how else can we do this i think the other problem we're starting to run into is that um, information is building up so fast now that nobody can stay current in their fields anymore and so i think that's also an opportunity for higher ed to grab onto um if you go back and watch my my talks like while i was at canvas uh back in 2012 and 2013 I was advocating for using MOOCs as a way to keep alumni up to date on skills. Like take your professors who really would love to teach seminar courses on the latest and greatest stuff coming out and, and have them do a once a year MOOC for all of your alumni that Mm -hmm. like updates them on things that have happened in the last year in your field. Right. Mm -hmm. And then the professor gets to teach something they absolutely love. It makes sure it ensures the professors stay up to date in their fields because of doing this and you're connecting your alumni back to your university. Right. 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 You could do it on a subscription model. You could have it be part of an alumni package where when you're a donor, you get access. Like there's so many opportunities on this one. And, And the one I like best is, you're then mining your alumni group for speakers, for your classes, for Mm -hmm. connections, for internships, like by bringing those graduates back in year after year to get their kind of, it's like an annual checkup to get your annual update. (laughs) You, you, you reap the rewards of that benefit. Right. So that there are things we should be doing in, in education that 
we're not doing, but again, we don't know what's in the classes right now. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like a fundamental problem at the base of everything. Yeah. We don't know what the curriculum is at so many institutions. Right. And so I love, I mean, the institutions that we work with, they are starting to know what's there. They're starting to see the gaps easier. They're starting to, to be able to um, see the internal misalignments, the and misalignments and programs, the programs that have, you know, too much like, oh, we teach this like 10 times and we don't need to. Why are we yeah. doing that? Right. Mm-hmm. And so um, getting again back to that efficient, engaging curriculum. It needs to be useful. It needs to align to workplace skills. Right. We need to get there in yeah. education. <laughs> And I hate to cut this short, but we're at one o'clock already. Yeah, look at that. We're at we're at four o'clock on the on the East Coast, even. Yeah, you know? so all I care about is it's it's, it's all it's all good. It's it, we're included <laughs> uh, from time zones, but uh, but yeah. So uh, thank you very much for your time. And Maria, if folks want to learn more. Uh, we mentioned Course Tunes. Uh, your website is coursetunes.com. Coursetunes.com. Uh, no s. Coursetune.com. And thanks very much. Thanks to our sponsors, EB Lifestyle. Uh, thanks as always to, to Terry, Terry Gibbons. Uh, thank you for your time. And well, I have uh, to note that EB Lifestyle is a, a interior design and renovation and the real estate development company in France, in the south of France, which is nice. It's so, a beautiful, uh, beautiful uh, Trebian website, uh, which, yes. which folks can also, can also <laughs> check out there uh, as well. Thanks again, Maria. Thanks, Terry. Thanks, everyone, for joining. We'll be back again next Wednesday at 12 Pacific, 3 Eastern. And uh, the world's crazy, so we'll have plenty to talk about. Thanks, yes. everyone. Yes, right. have a great day, everybody.